Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. So I found out that exactly three years ago, almost to the day, we started John. Three years ago. So it was the first week of October in 2015 that we started this study, and here we are, eight chapters. <laughs> so. <laughs> We'll see, we'll see how tonight goes. I'm planning on and hoping on getting to verse 30. It's a good stopping point in the middle of the chapter um, before the end of chapter 8. Uh, there's a lot of things. Boy, I, I don't know. One of the things that the Lord used to cause me to really see the um, incredible Jewish context of the book of John was John chapter 8. Like years ago, I ended up preaching a sermon out of it. And ever since, John chapter 8, John chapter 9, John chapter 10, don't want to, you know, give up all of the uh, little things down the road that are, that are coming, you know, spoiler alert, but it's, it's really amazing, these chapters. Um, and chapter 8 is, is, of course, no exception at all. I'll give you some review of what we encountered in chapter 7, specifically the end of chapter 7. Does anybody remember what, what the, what the uh, situation is? What's the, there's a feast going on, isn't there? The Feast of Tabernacles, okay, which, by the way, I believe is going on right now. So it's very fitting to uh, be talking about this here. So, there was a great division between the Jews who believed in, or at least tolerated, Jesus and those who did not. Nicodemus, uh, remember from John chapter 3, the Jewish ruler, Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, defends Jesus, and the unbelieving Pharisees dis- dismiss him, dismiss Jesus as hailing from Galilee. No, no prophet arises out of Galilee, they say. So we end chapter 7 with everyone going into their own house. And this was on the last day of the feast. Okay, the great day of the feast. Jesus, by contrast, went into the Mount of Olives. So, um, let's take a look here. The last verse of, uh, of chapter number 7. And every man went into his own house. They all just kind of dispersed. The crowd kind of just fell apart. They went, they were, were done here. And they went into their own homes. And Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, so this is the next morning, immediately following that last day, that great day of the feast. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple. The events of John chapter 7 occurred as Jesus was teaching in the temple. 
he enters into the temple again, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Isn't that amazing to think of? If you've uh, been to Israel with us, you know, when you go over to the southern steppes area, at least, there's all different kinds of uh, tour guides and groups just hustling and bustling about and learning things. Maybe there's somebody sitting down over here giving a devotion, somebody sitting down over there giving a devotion. In my mind's eye, that's what I imagine this scene was like because the culture in Jesus' day, there was, there was rabbis and there were disciples, okay, followers. Um, and if you read any of the Jewish literature, okay, extra biblical literature, uh, that talks about rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so, and there's different stories about these rabbis, they all have their disciples. And it would be normal to sit at the feet of specific person that's your rabbi, your teacher, your, the one that you're following, and, and, and listen to what that person has to say. And here Jesus enters into the temple, and we read that he, he sat down, and he taught the group of people that just gathered. They saw him come in, let's go hear what he has to say, and they all just gather, and he's sitting there, and he's, and he's teaching them. Now, we come to a passage in the next couple of verses here about the woman taken in adultery. Okay, this specific uh, passage here does not occur anywhere else but John. And we read about it here, and there's some that say that this is not a, a valid uh, canon of scripture, that this was put in after the fact. Uh, I personally do not believe that. I believe that this is part of John's gospel. And so the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. Now you can just imagine, okay? Just, just picture this here for a second. I'm not sure if when Jesus was sitting, if he was sitting on the ground, or if he was sitting maybe on some kind of a, I mean, over there, there's all kinds of rocks and boulders and pillars and whatnot. Maybe it was a bench. Maybe he was, you know, who knows what he was sitting on, but he was sitting down. Maybe he was sitting somehow <clears throat> like I am, not in a chair like this, but, you know, this kind, this kind of height, you know, people were gathering around. They were probably sitting on the ground. And then all of a sudden, just as if somebody interrupted this Bible study and busted through those doors here and just says, hey, I've got something, you know, to show you. <laughs> it would just be kind of, you know, rude, wouldn't it, in that situation? It's no less rude here. Not to mention what they are trying to do. It's just a despicable, deplorable situation. So Jesus is in the middle of teaching a group of people in the temple. He's talking to them about who he is. He's talking to them about the truth of the word of God. And the Pharisees and the scribes, in the middle of this, they, 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 they're bringing a woman. And the wording of this passage is that they... She's not coming quietly, basically. They're forcibly, basically dragging her into the midst of Jesus' teaching session, interrupting what's going on. And they bring him this woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, okay? So that'd be like somebody coming in here, through those doors, stopping everything that's going on, having somebody that's, you know, not coming along quietly or happily, and she's being dragged, and they forcibly set her down, in the middle, in front of everybody, in front of the people that Jesus is teaching and in front of Jesus himself, okay? And they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. Now, we see, I mean, a num number of different times here, uh, they try and catch him into some kind of a, a trap, okay? Um, and when they use um, the word, let's see here, 
Um, verse 6, it says the word tempting him. Okay? That, that shows us the whole entire heart's mindset and motive behind what they're doing. When they say master, they're not calling him out of a term of respect. Um, the, the, the whole entire situation has an ulterior motive. Um, okay. So, they set her in the midst. They say, in a master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, there's some interesting things about this situation. Um, and I mentioned this here below, but as we're reading it, the woman is there. Where's the dude? Where's the guy? He's not there. He's not to be found. Secondly, um, the situation, not that she wasn't guilty, okay? Because Jesus, we find, ends up telling her, go and sin no more. But in the situation that she's brought by these Pharisees and scribes to Jesus, and once again, everybody is Jewish, okay? It's not Jew the Jewish people are the bad guys. It's the scribes and the Pharisees, specifically the Judean religious leadership. And that's kind of a, a, a thing that we've been hearing over and over and over again in the book of John. Jesus' problem is not with, quote-unquote, the Jews, okay? The wording the Jews is for the worldwide audience of the book of John, which the Lord who inspired the book of John through John's pen anticipated that you and I here today would read it, okay, about the Jews. But the Jews that are being spoken of are the Judean religious leadership, not the whole of Israel's Jewish population. Uh, there was many that came to him and there was many that rejected him. All Jewish. Okay? I'm just saying this once again, reiterating it, because there are many in uh, liberal circles and, 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 and whatnot, humanistic circles, uh, in Jewish circles as well, that would falsely paint the book of John as being anti-Semitic. And they get it all wrong. Uh, who's being talked about, what's being talked about, they read it with a bias that, oh, this is anti-Semitic, when it's not at all anti-Semitic. Jesus is simply giving the Jewish religious leadership as he um, gives the scribes and the Pharisees uh, what's coming to them by telling them that they should know better. Okay, they're held to a higher standard than the everyday person on the side of the road because they should know better. Okay, they had copies of the Torah. They had scrolls of the Tanakh, which w every day Israelite was not privy to or did not have in their home, unless you were very wealthy. Um, anyway, um, so they bring, they bring her to him. They say she was taken in adultery in the very act. And Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Okay, so they're not seeking righteousness. They're not seeking justice. They are specifically trying to entrap Jesus into a scenario that he can't win either way, no matter what he says. Um, other portions of the scripture we find uh, the Pharisees asking Jesus about hypothetical situations where they would try and entrap him with giving an answer that would somehow be against the Torah, be against the law of Moses, being against the word of God that was revealed up to that point. And here is no different. Okay, so Leviticus 20.10. These are two passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that uh, validate the fact that Moses commanded, okay, uh, that such should be stoned. 
Leviticus 20, verse 10. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22:22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. Okay, so there was a, there was a, a, a judicial... I don't want to say um, formula for how things would, would play out in these scenarios. Interestingly enough, in the situation in the first century, okay, the Jewish religious authority, the Sanhedrin, they did not have authority to kill anybody. They did not have authority to stone anybody. That authority was given to Rome and solely Rome at that point in time. Okay? Um, and so at this first century scenario, we need to, we need to stone this, this woman. They did not have the authority to even carry that out. And secondly, them bringing her to Jesus specifically shows you that they have completely some other goal in mind. Because otherwise, you wouldn't bring a criminal to a, to a rabbi. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. Um, but they're trying to catch him in some kind of uh, statement that they can throw back at him. If he says, don't stone her, and I'm reading here from the, the sheet. If he says, don't stone her, he would be condemned as one who rejected Moses' law. If he says, stone her, he would be condemned for attempting, attempting to usurp the authority of the Romans, for they alone had the power of life and death. Okay, in this uh, culture, in this time. The Jewish religious authority, the Sanhedrin, would have never brought such a case before Jesus, as in their eyes he had no authority to deliver a verdict and a sentence on such a case. The only reason for this situation was to destroy Jesus' reputation and credibility in one way or another. <sighs> There's a lot going on in our country right now that it's, it's amazing. Um, anyway, I just can't help but having that, that kind of a thing enter into my mind. This they said, verse 6, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now there's some interesting things about this passage. Um, have any of you guys ever seen The Passion of the Christ? Okay, I never saw it. Um, I don't know. Anyway, I've never seen it, but I remember there was one preview for it where he's writing on the ground. And I never saw the whole entire scene, but you always picture him, you know, writing something in sand. Okay, and you hear these preachers saying, oh, he was writing their names down, you know, one by one. He was writing down the different sins that they committed. They were writing down different... If you go to the temple complex, the temple mount that was there and even within the temple complex where Jesus is at this point it's stone okay so the, the, the thought that he would write down anything that would be legible um, is kind of hard to imagine especially those that say that he was writing something specific that caused these men to leave I don't want to get ahead of myself here but we're going to bring out some interesting points okay about this this uh, passage. 
So the word tempt, periodzo, uh, boy, I'm, <laughs> I have a hard time with Greek, okay. <laughs> um, to submit one to a test, to trap, or attempt to catch in a mistake, to test for the purpose of making one sin. This is their whole point. This is what they're there for. This is what they brought this woman there for. This is what they're talking to Jesus for. This is why they asked him, what do you say? Because they're attempting to catch him uh, in a trap or to attempt to make him make a mistake. Writing on the ground was probably not sand, but stone as expected in the temple complex. There is probably nothing specific or special about what was written as it was on stone. Now, I put the last phrase in italics as it is in italics in the King James Version because it is not it is not in the originals okay so the phrase as though he heard them not that's not that's not in scripture that's something that the translator translators added to help us understand their interpretation of the text what's interesting is Remember how we were talking about how he was sitting, right? Okay. And they bring this woman into the midst of this teaching session. And they set her down in the middle of everybody, forcibly. And they say unto Jesus, Moses in the law commanded us uh, that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? And then we see Jesus, at, he's, he's sitting, okay, but he stoops down. And we read with his finger, wrote on the ground. Now that word wrote is used many, many times to speak of being written, but it can even have to do with just scratching on the ground, making some kind of a motion. And I just think, <laughs> this is me, okay? This is, not, this is not scripture. This is Dan Bergman's interpretation, Dan Bergman commentary, okay? Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I picture, I, I picture, you know, they come in with this big thing, you know, all this huff and, 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 and puff and bring this woman in and we're going we're gonna to catch him. This is it. Moses commanded this woman should be stoned. What do you say? And he's just, you know, maybe he's moving a stone around or, you know, working at some grout between the stones and just kind of, you know, and you could imagine how just furious that would have made them. So I don't believe that it was something that he was specifically, you know, David, um, Samuel, you know, just writing down the names of these people, these hypothetical, you know, these names that I'm making up. I don't think that that was the case. I think he was just, he was getting at their nerves by not paying attention to uh, their request. You know, he was letting them kind of boil for a minute, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so when they continued asking him, okay, so as he's doing this, Master, uh, what do you say? He lifted himself up, okay. So either he, he, he sat up or he stood up. Um, we don't know specifically which one. He lifted himself up. Okay, he's going to speak. He's going to give us the thing that we can trap him with. Let's listen to what he has to say. He that's without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, verse 8. That's it. That's all that they get. And I find it just incredibly uh, wonderful um, the way that he handles this situation is something that only God can do this in this way and have this response. He doesn't say stone her. He doesn't, or he doesn't say don't stone her, okay? 
He just says, go ahead. Because the, the, the phrase, throw the stone, throw the first stone, is, is, is in his response. But he says, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Um, okay, so the crowd continued to press the matter upon Jesus. We used to remember that numerous times the Judean religious leadership attempted to condemn Jesus regarding his upholding or, lack thereof, breaking of the law. This is incredible. Jesus never says that she isn't guilty or not to stone her. And this is not at all the response that they wanted. And anyway, um, they get furious because they don't get the response that they're looking for. Uh, here's a, um, a quote from, from Barnes Notes, a commentary on this, on this passage. In the punishment by death, one of the witnesses threw the culprit from the scaffold or from a cliff, and the other threw the first stone or rolled down a stone to crush him. And we're going to look at Deuteronomy 17 in a second. You can go ahead and turn there. Keep your finger in the book of John. Um, look over to Deuteronomy 17. This was an order, and I'm reading from the sheet, that the witness might feel his responsibility in giving evidence as he was also to be the executioner. Jesus therefore put them to the test. Okay, Jesus' response is not only supernaturally wise and incredible, but it's scriptural. Okay, this woman was caught in the very act, they say. So, okay, he that's without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. All they had to stop them from killing this woman right then and there, all that they had to stop them was their own conscience of their own sin. Jesus therefore put them to the test. Without pronouncing on her case, he directed them, if any of them were innocent, to perform the office of executioner. This was said evidently well knowing their guilt and well knowing that no one would dare to do it. Okay, and I wouldn't, use the word evidently, of course, absolutely, okay? He knew their guilt. It's also interesting to note that the adulterous male is not here. How did they catch this woman in the act? Also, it seems a definite possibility that sexual sin is what is implied by Jesus' words without sin. There's some that, that, that believe that when Jesus said, he that is without sin among you, and the word sin is just sin, okay? But there's some that believe strongly that this is talking about the sin of adultery or sexual sin, fornication. He that's without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Okay? That's not specifically what is being said, but it's possible. It's possible that that's what's being inferred, um, which would be really interesting if that was the case. But again, he stoops down and writes uh, on the ground. And they which heard it, verse 9, oh, I've got to read Deuteronomy 17, don't I? Verses 6 and 7, okay? Speaking of the witnesses and the execution of the guilty party. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. And verse 7, the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death. 
and afterward the hands of all the people. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. Okay, so the witnesses, scripturally, were to be the ones to carry out the act. So there was a lot of different things wrong with how this uh, scenario was presented to Jesus. And there's a lot of things wrong with why it was presented to Jesus. And yet, everything about Jesus' response was clear and righteous and biblical. And they had nothing to say. Yes. Not that I know of. Um, the Mosaic law was specific that she had to be married. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't see anything um, additional in the text about her identity. Um, I'm not sure. Um, evidently. Um, but Jesus' response to her shows us that she was guilty. Okay. Um, their, their, their claims... Uh, of of her guilt when they brought her to Jesus were not without uh, not without uh, merit. Okay, so according to Jesus's response, uh, which we'll get in, a, in 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 a minute, he says, "Go and sin no more." If it was completely and totally, utterly fabricated by the scribes and Pharisees that brought her to Jesus, Jesus' response would have most likely not had anything to do with don't sin anymore. <laughs> you know, although that's a good thing for anybody to hear. Um, so I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I have these two passages that we looked up earlier, but other than that, um, any passages regarding the penalty for fornication or adultery, um, there may be something else or there may, there, there may not be. If, if, if what you're saying about the woman needing to be the wife of a husband in order to be guilty of, of, of death, that's what you're saying, according to the Mosaic Law? As far as if she, well, we also see. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I, I I agree with that. I, I I absolutely agree with that. But I'm not sure off the top of my head if there's another passage that deals with an unmarried woman. That's all I'm saying. Um, that's a very good question, though. Maybe when we uh, get back to to John chapter eight the next time I'm teaching, which I think is going to be next month, um, we, can, we can revisit that with some certainty. It might teach immorality. I don't know. I know that those that are proponents of that this passage does not belong in Scripture 
um, a lot of other versions, they'll have that note that says that this is not found in, in the most ancient manuscripts. I, I just believe that it is what it is. Um, there are others that would be a much more of a textual criticism um, mindset, that, um, which is in Judaism, by, by the way, as well. Um, things about Isaiah, things about Daniel, things about uh, even the, the Torah, uh, being by five different authors and not all by Moses. Um, and so um, I personally have uh, avoided that and just accepted kind of by faith um, that this is what it is. Um, but I don't know. Yes. I can't hear too good, so maybe asking a stupid question. No stupid question, just stupid answers, right? Mm-hmm, correct. What it says here, though, is they caught her in adultery. You can't commit adultery unless you're married. Well, what... The adultery, of course, is what I'm reading here, is between married people. Married person and married person. Right. So if it was... So, Temptation is between somebody that's not married. Well, that's, what, that's what my point is. So, so, so if, 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 if the husband is married to a wife and then he's committing adultery with this woman... That's not adultery? Oh, I, well. <laughs> it's not a stupid question. No, no, well, I mean, uh, he's committing adultery. Uh-huh. If he's married to somebody else, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure. I just take it at face value. She's committed adultery. Yeah. They're not, you know, her husband's committed adultery, this man's committed adultery, so she's a well, one thing, one thing that, and maybe I should have, but one thing that I, I didn't look into this passage with detail was the subject of, is this woman married or not? Um, so I'm not entirely prepared to answer that um, based on what we have here and what we have in the two passages that we looked at in Leviticus and, and, and Deuteronomy. If she was found with a married man or if she herself is also married. And, that, that, and that's what we're discussing. We'll have to revisit when we come back to the book of John, probably um, while everybody else is in Israel. Well, I'm just saying if, if the sin is adultery, that is what Leviticus is talking about. Mm-hmm. This scripture says that she committed adultery, whatever. Otherwise, they wouldn't call it adultery. Adultery. Exactly. They, they're telling Jesus, okay, in this situation where they're trying to entrap him, she was caught in adultery, Jesus. And so it's, it's, it's not validated um, until Jesus tells her, go and sin no more, meaning that she was guilty. Um, of what specifically or to what extent, we can't say with absolute certainty, but it's likely that it is what she was being accused of. So, yeah. So we, I think one of those things that we'll have to, I mean, we can find out some things and extrapolate some things from Scripture, but sometimes with different passages, we're not going to know till we get to heaven, you know. Maybe we'll meet this woman. And uh, was it adultery or fornication? You know, I mean, I don't know if we'll end up doing that. But, uh, What's the definition of it? It says here fornication is generally between two people who are not married. Uh-huh. If one is married, then it's adultery. Okay. Now, as we know, with 
uh, for instance, the word adoption, and I've been doing a, a lot of studying on this. Sure. As, as, as I've been studying, um, and you guys have heard it from Mark as well, um, the word adoption in Scripture and how it relates to glorification in our new bodies. Um, the word adoption is not today the English word what is written in the Greek, okay? Um, and so I don't know from, you know, the English definition of fornication versus adultery and what the Greek word meant, okay, as opposed to maybe the Hebrew word for adultery in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so um, I'm going to write that down in, in the, um, you know, portals of my mind to try and... <laughs> <laughs> try and remember for next time to say definitively this is what it was and then we can all sleep easy at night sound good okay all right so again he stooped down and wrote on the ground and and they which heard it okay what jesus said he that is without sin among you let him cast first cast a stone at her they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one. And Jesus is still just writing on the ground. Okay? And his students that he was teaching there, they're all sitting there, just like you're sitting here now. Okay? And the woman was sat in the midst of them. And all those that brought her in, they're, they're leaving. And you can imagine, like, you know, Jesus is still just, he, he's just writing on the ground. And everybody else is just kind of, you know, watching these guys leave one by one. It had to be a, a humiliating thing. But they were convicted by their own conscience and went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So apparently by the end of this whole entire thing, they kind of just, you know, the students, the people that were at Jesus' feet learning, they were just kind of like, okay, I guess class is over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, as Jesus, we don't know how long it was that he waited for these people to, the accusers, the scribes and Pharisees to leave, but they did one by one. Now, here each of the accusers is shown the wickedness of their own hearts by Jesus himself. Eldest to the last is probably not a reference to age, but rather rank and position. Okay. As in those that would be looked up to the most within the crowd that brought her in as the ones having authority, the ones that maybe instigated the entire matter, uh, they leave first. And it may be parallel to the amount of conviction that they feel. Having lived longer or experienced more, uh, being more familiar with what God's word says and being convicted by it, uh, we're not told, but they end up all leaving one by one. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now there are some additional things that take place in this passage in Jesus' exchanges with other Jewish people that end up coming up to him. Uh, at this time as he teaches in the temple that relate to his judgment of people and him being a judge. Okay, and it will relate kind of directly to this uh, situation here where Jesus at the end says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. 
Um, and it, this, this passage that I have here, John chapter 3, verse 17, uh, kind of really brings to light the whole kind of feeling behind uh, verse 11. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save them. Okay. Um, and so his primary task, his primary task at the time of his first coming was to be the savior of the world, the lamb of God. At his second coming, he's not going to be in the primary office of savior. He is going to be Lord, King, Judge, and all, all of the above. Uh, line of Judah. Absolutely. Um, and so there's a lot of things that are going to transpire in the next few verses that relate directly back to this thought. For, the, for, the, uh, for God sent not his son into in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus does not ignore her sin. He doesn't just let it slide under the rug. Uh, some people would like us to have that opinion of Jesus and would like uh, us to kind of live accordingly to that opinion. That it doesn't matter. We're, you know, we could do whatever we want and Jesus, you know, he'll just let it slide. Um, that's contrary to who Jesus is. But here Jesus does not ignore her sin. He rather kindly rebukes her for it. He does not put himself in the position of her judge, jury, and executioner, which is what the Pharisees and scribes were hoping he would do. Either that or that he would outright deny her sin and um, basically go against the law of Moses. Any comments, questions, or discussion before we move on to the next section in verse number 12? Okay. And like I said, there's some things about that passage that we'll talk about when we come back to John chapter 8 um, in the next study. So verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. There's a passage here that I copied out of Mark's notes from when he taught on the Feast of Tabernacles just because this is the instance where this happens. The feast was over, okay? The end of chapter 7 was the last day of the feast. But in the center of the temple court were four golden menorot built on bases 50 cubits high. 50 cubits. How, how, how long is a cubit, roughly? A foot and a half, right? Okay, 18 inches. So that makes it 75 feet. Is there anything around here that's 75 feet high? It's pretty big, just for the base of these things. Each had four branches, terminating in huge cups into which the oil was poured. The wicks were made from the worn garments of the priests. Throughout the night, the cups were kept full, and the lights of those menorot was so intense that it is said to have illuminated all of Jerusalem. And that's from the Temple Institute website, uh, as well as Mark's notes there. But this was still there. I mean, they hadn't taken everything down, you know. They weren't lit, but they were still there on the next morning. And Jesus makes the statement with that as the backdrop. 
I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. We must remember that Jesus' authority is one of the central themes in John's gospel. Over and over and over again, in all these chapters that we've looked through, Jesus' authority is brought up. His relationship to his Father is brought up. And how they are intrinsically connected. Uh, he said to the, to the Jewish people, I and my Father are one. In John chapter 10, he told Philip that if he'd seen him, he'd seen the Father. And that Jesus' authority, although he is 100% man, he's also 100% God. His authority and everything that he does emanates not from his uh, you know, own human mind, so to speak, but the fact that he is God in human flesh. Everything that he does is the Father's will. Um, okay, verse number 15. And Jesus responds to them. He says, you judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Now here's a, uh, a, a passage I copied out of the pulpit commentary. And it has some interesting um, points. When you read Jesus say, you judge after the flesh, you judge after the outward appearance, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. When you read that, it kind of, when you, when you first read it, it makes you think, okay, what is the difference between what he's saying in verse 15 and verse 16? Let me read this here, and it makes a lot of sense. Especially when you read the second half of verse 16 is the point of what Jesus is saying. There's uh, some people, Storm, Moulton, and Godet suggest, I by myself, I alone, independently of the Father, judge no man. Mayer rejects all these attempts to add to the text and maintains that our Lord is claiming the lofty position of Savior rather than judge. Okay, and so the stress of what he says here relates back to what we read in verse 11. It relates back to John chapter 3, verse 17 that he in his first coming was not for the purpose of judging and condemning the world, but rather to be their savior. Um, and everything that he does kind of has that goal in mind, okay, while he was here in his earthly ministry. <clears throat> he came with that as his primary aim, purpose, intent, to heal, not to wound, to save, not to destroy, to give time for repentance, not to hurry sinners to their doom, to illumine, not to cover with darkness. It does not rest on my mere human consciousness, on what you who judge after the flesh might suppose it would rest, but on the eternal decisions of him who gave me my commission. And that's a, that's a paraphrase there to what Jesus said. The Father is in me and with me. I think the Father's thoughts and do the Father's will. Christ's testimony concerning himself, his implicit judgments on human nature, his indirect uh, condemnation of the whole crowd, by his gracious refusal to condemn the sinful woman to immediate doom, 
all issue forth with the sign manual of Almighty God, with whom and in whom he dwells as the only begotten Son. Um, sometimes those uh, commentaries can get kind of wordy and, <laughs> you know, people arguing with each other on different opinions, just kind of like uh, the Talmud and, and, you know, the Jewish religious uh, the Jewish writings can get with multiple rabbis having varying opinions. But when Jesus says in verse 15, you judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Okay, he's saying two things. He's saying, all of you that are uh, saying, I bear record of myself, my record is not true. The Pharisees specifically, okay, that were giving him a hard time and, and, and uh, basically leveling allegations at him that were completely false and calling him a liar. Um, everything that he says has to do with his relationship to the Father. When he says, I judge no man, and then he says, yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. He's not saying, I don't judge, but, but, but when I do judge, the Father that sent me is with me. What he's saying is, the judging that I do when I do judge is not I myself doing it, but it is the Father and his will, and he is the one that bears witness of me, along with myself and the works that I do, and John the Baptist, and all of those things, um, I think I, I gave a, a reference here to John chapter 5. The similar uh, scenario where Jesus talks about the judgments that he makes and where they come from. And so Jesus' judgments, uh, just as uh, what he does, what he says, how he acts, all emanates from the Father. Uh, so his judgments as well uh, come from the Father. Let's look back for a second, on John chapter 5 and verse number 30. John chapter 5 and verse number 30 through verse number 38. Uh, let's go to verse, uh, yeah, verse 30. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. See, isn't that kind of... Uh, parallel to exactly what we're talking about in John chapter 8. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Sometimes scripture is its own best commentary. You know, it interprets itself. It sheds light on things that uh, people can run away with in some kind of weird way. Uh, if we would simply examine uh, the surrounding scripture. Verse number 32, uh, or verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say, why? That you might be saved. Again, Jesus' goal primarily in his first coming was not to judge, not to condemn, but to save. Surely by giving the truth, indirectly people will end up being condemned. Okay, but that's not his primary goal. He was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light, speaking of John the Baptist. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him, 
you believe not. <clears throat> and we will see this similar thought carried out not only here in John chapter 8, um, but further along in our next study in part 2 of John chapter 8 when we get there. Okay. We are in verse number 19. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Now, this is, this is interesting, um, what we can understand from this. Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. What they're saying here is not a, a polite, um, kind of nice inquiry to, okay, uh, Jesus, where, where is the father? It's not a nice, polite inquiry. It's an, uh, kind of an indirect stab at this false allegation that was floating around about Jesus. This comment by the Pharisees is almost assuredly in relation to false allegations that Jesus was an illegitimate child of a human father. And if you talk to any Jewish person in Israel, especially the religious crowds, they have this point of view. Okay, and um, I've seen a number of videos in Hebrew. We watched one of them in Hebrew class of um, I Israelis. Specifically, they talk to the religious crowd because they get an interesting opinion out of them. Um, one of the videos was along the lines of if Menachem Schneerson, the Lubavitch rabbi that passed away in, I think, 1994, if he can be the rabbi, then why can't Jesus? And a, a lot of people said things along these lines that Jesus was, you know, he was illegitimate. Of course, they don't believe in the virgin birth. And so that's something that's not a, a, a new thought, but that the Pharisees back here at this point in time even held that point of view and uh, kind of mocked Jesus because of it. Um, just outright slander. <clears throat> These false accusations and what they're implying. And Jesus responds, you neither know me nor my father. Okay, you may know of Joseph, okay, my earthly father uh, that helped raise me, but he is not my father. My father is God. And we will see that uh, over and over again in the book of John. You neither, neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. Just like in John chapter 5, when Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, um, you don't have him dwelling within you because you don't believe me. If you, if, if, if you believed what I was saying, if you received me, then you would know my father. But the fact that you're not believing what I'm saying and you're refusing me shows that you do not know God. And uh, just a little bit later in John chapter 8, um, he says something along the lines of, you don't know him. I know him. If I said I didn't know him, I'd be a liar like you. And so things get kind of heated and Jesus doesn't mince words. Uh, with those that should know better and are leveling completely false allegations against him. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. Okay, we talked about this before. What is Jesus' hour? All the way back in John chapter 2 when Mary said, they have no wine. <laughs> and he says, you know, woman, what, what do I have to do with the uh, my hour is not yet come. And then there's mentioned a couple other times up until now, and then when we see later in Jesus' earthly ministry, it's mentioned again and again and again. What is Jesus' hour? It's his death specifically. Okay? He says, For this hour I was come into the world to glorify thyself. 
um, thine, thine hour or my hour is now come, you know, as he's getting ready to go to the cross. Um, but because his hour was not yet come, uh, nobody could touch him. Nobody laid their hands on him. Um, but interestingly enough, the fact that Jesus was speaking in or near the treasury shows that he knew the hearts and minds of the religious leadership who hated him primarily because he was a threat to their power, position, and wealth. Um, isn't there a passage, and I'm just kind of off the top of my head now, a passage where um, if somebody swears by the temple, you know, uh, wh whatever, you know, but if somebody swears by the gold of the temple, I mean, that's like a big deal. You know, Jesus was basically rebuking the Pharisees. <laughs> you say that if somebody swears by the temple, it's, 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 it's meaningless, but if they swear by the gold of the temple, whoa, look out, you know, that's a serious uh, oath there. If you're swearing by the gold of the temple, I mean, that's where the importance was. You know, in a lot of these religious leaders, it was corrupt. Um, remember Jesus overturning the temple, uh, overturning the tables in the money changer stations uh, there, and how these sacrifices would be sold, given to the priests, the priests would not sacrifice them, and then they would be sold back <laughs> to the next, you know, unwitting person that went to the temple money changer station. Um, and so there was constantly within the religious leadership a, uh, a, a money grabbing kind of a situation, you know, uh, uh, greedy for gain, desiring wealth. Do you remember in Luke, uh, the passage of the rich man and Lazarus? Uh, the whole entire context of that, just before Jesus gives that uh, account is he's talking to his disciples and he says the famous passage you cannot serve God and mammon you remember that and then we read like a verse after that it says the Pharisees they were listening they heard what he said and they were upset and they derided him okay they made a big stink because Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon and then at that point Jesus' disciples are there, the Pharisees are there, Jesus says, you know, there was a certain rich man who fared sumptuous, you know, and the whole context is the Pharisees think that they got it all because they got, you know, wealth. That's where the importance is. And this man who's crying from hell, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my five brethren, they have Moses and the prophets, it's a direct, um, you know, to the heart of the Pharisees who thought that they're good to go because they're Jewish. And um, the only literal account first-hand, eyewitness, first-hand account that we have of somebody being in hell is that of a Jewish person. And it was told to the Pharisees um, because they were greedy uh, and uh, greedy for gain, greedy for wealth. And because, well, if the Messiah comes, <laughs> you know, um, we're going to be out of a job, so to speak. Um, not only that, but they were the ones that everybody looked to. So it's not only... It's not only the, the, the money that they had, you know, ill-gotten gains with the, um, the, the money changer station in the, in the, in the temple uh, and elsewhere, um, but also the fact that they were the ones that were looked to as the ones that had the answers. So all of the people, I mean, you had the, you had the, 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 the Sadducees, right? That was the, um, you know, the priestly uh, party because they were the ones that dealt with the temple and all of those different things. And the Pharisees were the party of the people, but they were also 
um, in positions of teaching. They were the ones that had the synagogues. They were the ones that interpreted the Torah. They were the ones that, you know, lived off whatever the people would give them. And uh, in a lot of situations, it was very, very corrupt. And so um, it's just incredibly interesting that in all of this, Jesus is in the treasury of the temple. And you remember that passage where it talks about if you swear by the temple, it's no big deal. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you know, that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, that's a weighty matter. But Jesus, in all of his rebuke, is standing in the place that would be the most kind of guarded as this is where the real importance is. Not in the Holy of Holies, but in the treasury. Um, and so it's just, it's not a coincidence that he's there. Um, and if Jesus was who he said he was, and he is, the people that had the positions that would be looked to as the authority, you see, everything he's saying is just making them so upset because he's taking their authority away from them and showing them to be um, wolves in sheep's clothing, basically. Um, then he said in verse 21, then Jesus again said unto them, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. And there is just like, there's, the, the tension is so thick, you could cut it with a knife. Everything that's transpired so far in this chapter with the woman being brought to Jesus who was caught in the act of adultery and how uh, riled up the accusers must have been when Jesus just kind of, you know, looked down on the ground and started messing with some rocks or whatever and not listening to them. And then when he finally responds, he cuts to the heart with conviction, telling them, okay, you that are without sin, most likely sexual immorality, go ahead and cast the first stone. And they just kind of stood there, not knowing what to do. Maybe they got all upset. Um, but eventually, the final outcome was they ended up leaving, one by one. Um, and then Jesus uh, tells them, uh, in verse number uh, 19, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. And then in verse 21, he says, you're going you're gonna to look for me and not find me and uh, you're going to die in your sins. And you could just imagine how uh, the tension and the anger and just the whole situation must have been building uh, like a bomb ready to go off. Here, as he will in the second half of this chapter, Jesus focuses once again like a laser on the heart of the issue, sin. Lots of times uh, there would, you know, be preference on the part of the Pharisees and scribes and Judean religious authorities to talk about anything other than their own sin. And yet what Jesus mentions here, he brings out this little three-letter word, sin. And he says that you're going to die in your sins. You're going to look for me and not find me. You're going to die in your sins. And in the next verse, I believe in verse 22, um, it's in verse 24, he mentions it again. Let's look at verse 22. How would the, the Jews, and then again, not all of the Jews, not all of the Jewish people, not every single Israelite son of Abraham, but specifically the Judean religious leadership, uh, said, will he kill himself? Because he said, whether I go, you cannot come. Now, what, what they're saying is not necessarily 
as before, it's not a, 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 a nice kind of, you know, wondering, is he going to kill himself because he said whether he's going to go, we can't, we can't come? It's, it, it, it's more of a, a, of a mocking of what Jesus said. He just accused them of, 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 of sin and that they're going to die in their sin. When they say, will he kill himself because he says, where, where I go, you can't come, uh, is, is, is kind of like an, an, an angry retaliation more than an, an honest inquiry. Is, is he going to kill himself? You know, it's, it's, it's not a nice thing. Um, there's tension so thick, you know, you can't see your hand in front of you. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Now, I want to bring something to light that's really amazing with this statement that Jesus makes in verse number 24. Making aliyah to Israel means assent. Okay, when somebody immigrates to Israel, you know, they make aliyah. That means to make assent, to go up. Whenever anyone goes to Jerusalem, even if it's from the north, they are always going up to Jerusalem. And you probably heard Mark mention this a couple different times. This is due to two factors. Topographically, Jerusalem is on a hill. It is a higher elevation than all of the surrounding areas. It is also looked at as being higher spiritually because it is where God put his name. It is the location of the Holy Temple. It is the center of the Jewish world and the seat of the Jewish religious authority. In contrast, Jesus hailed from where? Galilee. Okay, that's not his birthplace, but that's where he was brought up. A place where second-class peasants and fishermen dwelt with a mixed crowd of unclean goyim, Gentiles. Okay? Standing in the highest esteemed area of the temple complex, the treasury, in the highest spiritual location, the temple, speaking to the highest up on the spiritual ladder, the Judean religious authorities, Jesus, a Galilean, tells them that they are below him and that he is from above. Don't miss the context of this statement. There's more to it than just the fact of what, what he says. It's where he is and how Jerusalem was understood, how the temple complex was understood, how the Judean religious authorities were understood. They were all above everything and everyone. And Jesus says in verse number 22, you are from beneath. I mean, just, just that alone uh, and I, I already mentioned how this is like a time bomb ready to explode. Um, I am from above, ye are of this world. I am not of this world. He then drives it farther by telling them that he is not from this world as they are. If they don't believe that he is the Messiah, they will die in their sins. When he says, unless you believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sins, it's not believing that I am fill in the blank, blah, blah, blah. He's specifically saying, in, 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 in the context and in, in, in how it's mentioned, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, I am He, I am the one that should come, I am the one prophesied, unless you believe that I am He, who I've been telling you that I am uh, for these last years now, you're going to die in your sins. And it kind of comes to a point. I mean, what do you, 
What do you say to that if you're one of these Judean religious authorities? Verse 25, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? Who are you? Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. How, how, how blinded they must have been to not understand what Jesus is saying or who he's speaking of. This is the first honest question, I believe, that we hear from the religious leaders. Once all of this kind of comes to a head, they ask Jesus the question, who, who, who are you? And you can sense maybe there's a little bit of a, of, of, of a backing off of their animosity and their you know, vile attacks with an honest question. But then Jesus responds, he says, I'm who I've been telling you from the very beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true and I speak to the world the things which I have heard of him. Um, okay. Jesus' answer, however, has the mixed reception. We will find shortly that many believe, quote-unquote. This belief is not a saving faith. And it it's, uh, works out wonderfully that Mark is teaching what he is in the book of Hebrews because it kind of sets the stage very, very well for what we will encounter in the book of John about professing believers that do not possess. Okay, this is exactly what we encounter here. It is not a reception of him as their savior. It is a superficial, temporary acceptance of what Jesus has told them thus far. And we're going to get to... Um, Verse number 30, and, and have another comment about this. Then Jesus said unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. The lifting up of the Son of Man is parallel to the gospel presentation given uh, by Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember the Son of Man being lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? So when Jesus says, when you lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He. Also, there's another passage uh, that we read in the book of John. Um, we alluded to, it's in John chapter 12, where he says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself also speaking of his crucifixion. So when it says you have lifted up the Son of Man, it's not exalting him. It's not, you know, lifting him up in a symbolic fashion, but literally his crucifixion, being lifted up on the cross. Uh, then you'll know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. We see a reoccurring theme here, a reoccurring statement. Jesus does nothing outside of his Father's will without his Father's guidance uh, he speaks his father's words, he thinks his father's thoughts, he does the actions that his father has showed him to do. We read that in, I think, John chapter number 5. Okay, so um, the lifting up of the Son of Man is his crucifixion, parallel to what he told Nicodemus in John 3. 
There were many after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection who believed on him as the Messiah. The phrase, ye shall know, okay, after I'm lifted up, then you'll know, is pointing out to them not that they will necessarily accept him, okay, because there were many, many, many that rejected him, specifically in the religious uh, leadership. It's not pointing out that they will necessarily accept him, but that the proof will be there, and the evidence will be sufficient and complete. When I'm lifted up, you'll know that I'm the Messiah. Whether they'll accept him or not, whether they'll trust him as their savior to save them from their sins, that's another story. Many did, but many didn't. But he's saying, once you see this unravel and unfold, and when you see the events that transpire relating to the death, burial, and resurrection, you'll have a choice to make. The proof will be there. The evidence will be complete. Also, and I love this phrase, Jesus only always pleases his Father. Is this true of us? I do only, he says, I do always those things that please him. <laughs> Did we do that? Uh, Friday, today. Did we do always those things that please the Father? Are we honest with ourselves? <laughs> um, this is something to aspire to, but also something to allow to kind of enter into our, 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 our hearts um, by way of conviction. Do we always do those things that please him? That's something we should strive for. Not just 90% of the time, not just 99% of the time, but always. That should be our goal. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. As mentioned previously, those who believed were professors, not possessors. In a few verses, this same crowd, okay, this same crowd that believed on Jesus, quote-unquote, will be calling Jesus demon-possessed, just a couple verses later. Verse 30 simply shows us their willingness to listen to Jesus' words up to this point. It is their denial of sinfulness and need of a Savior that is the problem. So something that we find here in this passage, when Jesus springs up the fact that you're going to die in your sins if you don't believe that I am the Messiah. And our next time when we pick up in verse 31, we're going to see this crowd that believed on Jesus, quote-unquote, they professed, okay, to be accepting of what he had to say. Um, as soon as he brings up the subject of sin, it's like everything turns on its head. With this crowd who uh, decided to accept what he was saying up to this point, they turn 180 against him. As soon as he mentions, you need to be made free from your sin, whoever is, uh, you know, sin is, uh, whoever sins is the servant of sin. And you need to be made free. And they start saying, we don't need to be made free. We're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage to anybody. And uh, Jesus says, whoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And then they, they just get upset. Upset, upset, upset to the point where they call Jesus demon-possessed and seek to kill him. Does that sound like a, profess, uh, uh, a possessing believer to you? No. And being able to understand uh, the difference between somebody that professes faith and somebody that possesses faith, somebody that believes quote-unquote, Jesus, and somebody that receives him. Vastly different things. Um, and so, 
we'll be encouraged with some truth from the next passage that we look at. Is, is there any um, questions or comments or discussion before we end here, kind of halfway through John chapter 8? The next section is, is, is pretty amazing, pretty crazy, so I'm excited to show that to you. <laughs> um, probably be um, two weeks, in two weeks, I think. Uh, I'll have the Bible study and we'll, we'll pick it up here. Well, praise the Lord. God's word is good. I had, I had good subject material. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the teacher, it's the material. Okay, praise the Lord. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, once again for this night. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to look into your word. Thank you for to be, uh, the ability to be able to gather here without having to worry about uh, our safety or um, what we're doing being illegal. Thank you for the freedoms that we have in our country. Um, thank you for the uh, fact that we have your word in our language. We pray that uh, you'd help us to dwell on these things uh, for the week ahead. I pray, Lord, that we would have the desire and the goal and the aspiration to always do the things that please you. Pray that you'd help us in that. We pray that you would um, bless our, our, our food and our fellowship. We thank you for the hands that prepared uh, the, the food that we're going to receive. And um, we just pray that you would bless the rest of this night. Be with the prayer requests that were mentioned uh, earlier. And we give you the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4433. Shalom.